0: attractive to you than the previously acquired unit. Whatever it is, okay? So this is a kind of natural law which is imposed on us that we keep accumulating assets but ever more reluctantly. So the big question which arises next is What is the particular asset where this feature appears less pronounced than for the others? In other words, this kind, oh yes, and we we do that until we reach a point which is a technical word, but it's good to know that English word, satiation point satiation point. So we keep accumulating assets until we reach the satiation point, which will happen sooner or later. Then we say, okay, that's it. I want no more of this particular thing. I have to look at something else. So this is Uh, what we do, we all do, we look around and try to find the particular asset for which this satiation point is removed further and further and further. So the natural question to ask, is there something, a substance, for which the satiation point is in fact so far remove that for practical purposes it is beyond reach and that's a very serious question And lots and lots of philosophers starting with Aristotle or maybe even before him they were asking and they came up with the answer that yes there is and in modern times or even in ancient Greece I would say uh, when these great philosophers and mathematicians and other people who were working, it was already evident that gold answered that uh, demand best. Because for gold, this reluctance which we have to get another unit and another and another would be less pronounced than for all the others. And the satiation point is further removed. And using, again, the technical language of uh, modern subjective economics, the marginal utility, and you finish the sentence, everybody, the marginal (laughs) utility of gold is constant. Well, uh, all right. But we could say less controversially declines at a rate... More slowly than any other. That's, that's it. So, this is the technical language, but I have explained what it means, and I hope that uh, you got the point. So this is what... Uh, gold has, this exquisite property which can be described in terms of its marginal utility. But for practical purposes this means that uh, suppose the government or a committee of economists decides that, no, it shouldn't be gold, it should be a basket of commodities, and okay, let's have some gold in it, why not? But we'll have crude oil, we'll have wheat, we'll have corn, we'll have, uh, name it, name it, you know. Sand, dirt, dirt silver, so, air. Yeah, and, and you know, there there might be coffee producers say, oh, don't leave me out. Put some coffee in that too. Put some tea and spices. And by the way, these things like spices were serving human uh, race at the time as money, or salt, or a lot of other things. And Let's ask the question. All right, the government makes a law that from now on the unit of value is not gold, it's not debt, but it's a basket of commodities with all these things in it. What will the consequence of such a decision be? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm suggesting it to you and you can think about it. Uh, if you don't find my explanation uh, satisfactory, then you can work out your own. That The effect will be the same that you take a yardstick, a measuring rod, a yardstick, and The government makes a law that from now on, the yardstick must not be made of metal, it must be made of rubber. That's exactly the same, what would happen if you replace gold by a basket of commodities because the marginal utility of every one of those components other than gold would decline at a faster rate. So the basket as such will be inferior. There is no way of improving on gold as a unit of value. And that's it. Uh, if I added any more to that, I would just uh, <laughs> make the point weaker. But this is what it is. So I'm critical of Mises because for some reason, which I can't uh, find out why, he missed that. I mean, all these things, declining marginality, and so uh, very paramount in Mises' work. Why didn't he say that? I don't know. I know that Mises would not say what you just said. Uh, Sandeep said something uh, which I asked him to repeat, That uh, describing gold. Gold's uh, marginal utility is constant or declines at the slowest rate. So you could say that the marginal utility is of gold is unique <coughs> Because whereas the marginal utility of anything would decline, that of gold would not, because it would be constant. Now, to my mind, this is the same to say that the marginal, marginal utility of gold declines at a slower rate than that of anything else. And I prefer that, because the way Sandy put it, Is simpler, but it has a problem, that it's a little bit controversial, because a great man like Mises took issue with it. Mises, in one of his books, is very, very specific on this question, and he says that you make a big mistake if you say that the marginal utility of gold is constant. And then he goes on and says that Uh, the constant marginal utility uh, is equivalent to infinite demand. So, uh, another way of saying that that the demand for gold is infinite and he doesn't like that for uh, good reasons because infinite is a controversial concept. And, and therefore it should be avoided in, in uh, theoretical uh, constructions. And uh, uh, for that reason I am inclined to drop this in spite of the attractiveness of saying marginal utility of gold is constant whereas marginal utility to, anything else declines, you know, and uh, and then the controversy is avoided. But actually we shall return to this question later uh, in the course, in another context, that the uh, The infinite demand for gold is not as controversial as it appears at first blush for the following reason. Because it is tempered by something called interest. So the marginal utility of gold is constant in the absence of interest. But once interest is brought in, then we have different time preferences, uh, different productivities, and so on, and all these things uh, interact. And as a result, uh, uh, what we have is that the uh, marginal utility of gold is modified by the presence of interest. But that's another subject I will come uh, to discuss on another occasion during this course. Now, I come to the first point discussed by Mises in his article under the heading The Futility of Inflationary Policies. The government, we have to accept this as an axiom, all governments in history and presently all over the world are inflationists at heart. For selfish reasons, maybe some of the reasons are not so selfish, altruistic, but certainly misguided because they think that by increasing the amount of money, which they can certainly do with the help of their central bank, they are doing good for their subjects, all of them. Everybody will benefit. The more money there is, the greater welfare society will enjoy. Now, this is a mistake, as Mises explains. But Mises explains this explains this in a way which has a fly in the ointment. Because Mises says that the extra money which the government prints and puts into circulation is going to be spent on goods or on services. And since the supply of goods and the supply of services has not been increased, the more money will chase fewer goods and fewer services. So, using the standard argument of quantity theory of money, prices will increase and wages will increase as well. Now, where is the fly in the ointment? it's a, a linear theory and that's it's is true but now I, I don't want to go in that direction <laughs> the fly in the ointment is that there are other possibilities of spending money for example um, you could spend it on the bond market Ah, that's yeah, right yeah. financial assets that's the fly in the ointment the uh, government prints money more money much more money like today quantitative easing and it's not a foregone conclusion that you can spend the extra money either on goods or on services because you can also spend it on financial instruments. Bonds, bills, mortgages, as a lender you buy mortgage. And then you can buy future contracts, you can buy options, you can buy derivatives on interest rates, and so on and so forth. So there's a whole spectrum of other things you can spend your money. And if, in an extreme case, all the extra money the government prints are spent on financial instruments, then the amount spent on goods and services will be the same. And there will be no increase in prices and no increase in wages. That's at least a theoretical possibility. I know in practice it doesn't happen that way, but you as a theoretician have to take care of this as well. So this is the fly in the ointment. As a matter of fact, As a matter of fact, the government is very conscious of that and the central bank is very, very conscious of that and they don't want the extra money to be spent on goods and services and they very much want you to spend the extra printed, freshly printed money on financial instruments, especially they want you to buy government bonds. However lousy a uh, financial instrument it happens to be, wasn't always that way, but today, who in his right mind would buy a 30-year US government bond with 2. some percent yield when the rate of inflation is perhaps a multiple of that? I mean, you have to have your head examined before you do something like that. But, as a matter of fact, people do buy. Not just the Chinese, not just the Japanese, but flesh and blood people do buy bonds. So that's a natural question to ask. Is there something wrong with them? (laughs) No, there's nothing. In fact, these people are one of the smartest of all people. They are the bond speculators. You see? And this is something uh, which I would classify as a perfect disaster. In other words, the government policy Inflationary policy backfires as badly as it could possibly backfire. Because the following thing happens the government thinks, and the central bank thinks, that this extra demand for government bonds is going to help the inflationary policy because what happens is that the, uh, people buy the bonds then the bond price goes up which means in terms of the rate of interest it is going to go down well that's exactly in the program of the inflationary program of the government they want prices Uh, they want uh, more money and the reason is because this is going to push interest rates down. Standard quantity theory of money argument. If the money is spent on bonds then the bond price goes up, interest rate goes down. So where is the problem? Well, the problem is that the bond speculators put a big hole in this whole argument because, as I just pointed out, the bond speculators are a very smart lot of people. They are far smarter than the central bank's agents And just imagine a pit like in a commodity market there are pits and then the uh, bidding goes across the pit people are uh, who are bidding are standing around. So here are the speculators the bond speculators and here are the agents of the central bank. Now this is the smart lot they are very smart people and this is The central bank agents are in comparison rather dull, but for a reason. They work for salaries, maybe some bonuses, but they don't put their own capital at risk because if they are losing, and please remember, they are losing very, very often, every devaluation, whether it's the British pound or the dollar or any other currency, uh, they are losing to people like George Soros, who says, single-handedly I broke the Bank of England. He he wrote a book. He takes credit. I mean, I think it would have been wiser to keep quiet. Fuck <laughs> the talk at the billions but don't boast with it. After all this will create some bad blood somewhere. <laughs> <You> Won't <know? laughs> well, endear you either to the government or even to your fellow human beings because they are well why? What what is the justification? I mean a wheat speculator or a speculator in in uh, cattle or agriculture commo- commodities does a great service to society because if he anticipates future shortages then his supply <coughs> will alleviate the suffering and if he anticipates a bumper crop then it's the opposite effect bumper crop will push down the price of the agricultural commodity below the level that the producers must have in order to break even. So there's damage, whether to the producer or to the consumer, and the speculator in agricultural commodities does a great service to society to alleviate the suffering which would otherwise occur naturally. But George Soros, in breaking the Bank of England, what kind of useful service did he, I mean, if he blew it up, that would have been, but he didn't, he just pocketed, he took a big chunk of money and appropriated as private uh, profits. So, the question is, What is the answer to this problem? And what is actually happening? Well, right. what is actually happening is that this idea of promoting financial speculation is not thought over properly. In fact, A little bit of history. The main main, uh, technique which the central bank and the government has in uh, promoting financial speculation is uh, known as open market operations of the central bank. So I I wanted to put it in context and and therefore I go back a little bit of history. The uh, constitution of any central bank, and that includes the Federal Reserve of the United States as well, but historically it was preceded by the Reich Bank of Germany, and uh, you might Uh, want to know that the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was patterned on the operational uh, book of the Reichsbank in Germany which was very successful as you know it financed a tremendous industrial development between the years 1871 when uh, Prussia uh, conquered France and the German Reich was born the same year it was declared of all places in Versailles the palace of Versailles but that's what it was declared, the German Reich and, and then they created a central bank which was a paragon of all central banks. The pattern was not altogether bad. I'm not in favor of central banks, but I must say I admire the way the Germans constructed their Reichsbank. This is another topic which I'm not going to discuss today. But the Federal Reserve Bank was patterned on that, And, uh, and it had a provision a very important provision, that the central bank must be passive, it must not be active. In other words, it could enter into business relationship with various members or units of the economy, but the initiative has to come from outside, it must not come from within the central bank, and what that meant in practice was that the central bank can state its rediscount rate, but then it stops and waits for others to step forward, coming with a real bill and offering it for a rediscount. Uh, usually banks would do that, and that's why it's called rediscount. It's not called discount. It would be discount if the producer directly would go to the central bank. But that's not uh, how it worked. But the producer or distributor would have the real bill, and he would go to his bank and discount it there. But then this bank might be short of funds. And therefore, he would take the same, oh yeah, stamp it and everything, and then would take the same real bill to the central bank. And now, don't say it's being discounted, but say it's re-discounted. So the bank, the ordinary commercial bank, which deals with the public, would... Go to the central bank and would re discount the same bill. Now, at maturity, of course, this is going in back in the opposite direction. But the central bank's stamp will be on the back of the bill. And that some of these commercial banks found embarrassing. The customers asked, What? You took my bill to the central bank? Are you short of money or something? Something is wrong with you? You know, completely wrong idea. <laughs> but uh, but the banks imagine that this is a blot on their reputation that the central bank sent it and the, the bill had been rediscounted. They just thought that, and therefore, they didn't use that facility as much as they should have. And instead, what happened was that the central bank changed completely against its own book of operations. I said it had to be passive participant in the market instead of being active. So they turned it around and said, we are going to take the initiative. Yes, we are the central bank. So how shall we do that? Well, we are going to go into the open market, meaning the bond market, and purchase the bonds in the open market at our own initiative, when we want it and as much as we want it. We are not going to wait for customers to step forward with real bills and all that junk. We are going to take the initiative. We are going to manage the money supply. And that, ladies and gentlemen, happened after World War One. very soon after. Uh, in fact, in the very early 1920s, the uh, Federal Reserve has 12 regional banks. They are all banks, proper banks, with customers, mostly ordinary commercial banks. And uh, they uh, did something illegal in the early 1920s. This has not been properly researched. I have done my bit of research, but it would need a lot more research to go to the bottom of this question. How did this illegal, because the make sure the open market operations of the Federal Reserve are illegal because they violate the provisions of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. I mean, no sympathy with the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. It's by and large a bad document, but it has some good provisions. And uh, allowing a violation is no way to handle the problem. And this uh, provision of the Federal Reserve Act was that if one of the 12 regional Federal Reserve Banks is caught, that its liability on note issue and its deposit liabilities, these two major liabilities of the Federal Reserve Bank, covered by government bonds rather than real bills or gold, these are the two possibilities according to Federal. Either you cover your liability as a Federal Reserve Bank, by gold. Or, you cover it with real bills maturing in no more than 91 days, drawn on goods which will be sold within 91 days. Goods in high demand. And you bring in another type of paper, government bonds, to make that cover to have an as an show it as an asset to back your notes and deposit liabilities then you will be fined and the fine will be steep and progressive the more you violate that rule the higher rate you will have to pay as a fine that's in the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, a very good provision that you must not cover your note and deposit liability with government bonds or government paper or mortgage or whatever. The only two things, and even the ratio is was fixed, 40% gold and uh, uh, real bills. 40% could be greater, but the real bill uh, cover for the liabilities cannot be greater than 60%. That's all carved into stone. You can still read it. It's on the Internet, the original, before amendments, Federal Reserve Act 19. 1913. So that was thrown to the winds because quietly, very, very quietly, the Federal Reserve started to enter the open market and started to buy government bonds. Well, you see, the word is open market operations, but it's a misnomer because it's mostly purchase open market purchase. Now, sure, they were selling some for window dressing purposes, trying to indicate that they are even handy. But make sure that on a net basis, every single year, there are more purchases in the open market than sales, on a net basis. So, it's really not open market operations, but open market purchases of government bonds, or if you want to put it even more strongly, more emphatically, then you would say open, uh, would, you would say it's monetization of government debt. Converting a liability into an asset. The central bank comes like the guardian angel and takes the government debt and lo and behold Hocus-pocus, it's an asset, you see? was well, originally a liability, no, it's an asset. And of course, you can imagine, Keynes and Friedman came much later, so they found this policy already in place, but they were very happy about this. They just welcomed this. This was just the thing to have, you know, sandco bank intervention uh, not intervention but central bank purchases of government bonds because with this you have a fine tuning of this quantity of money and with this fine tuning you can herd people into nirvana everybody will be happy everybody will uh, uh, reach heaven And, uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, we know that this has not happened. Uh, Let's have a break now, and after the break uh, we'll have a question period, and I want to uh, also take a few minutes after the break to explain why this wonderful plan of taking all the people to heaven didn't work. Thanks very much Professor. See you in 15 minutes.